This week on the According to Sources podcast, part two of my interview with Bloomberg M&A reporter Ed Hammond. I ask him, what was the biggest deal that never happened? What can lead to a deal's demise in the middle of the process? And Ed tells me the most unusual way he's ever come across a deal scoop. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of September 9th, 2000. And 18. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. This is such a game changer. Hello and welcome to According to Sources a podcast that devotes its time to the discussion of mergers and acquisitions, event-driven trading, activism, and the sources that cover and surround them. In part one of my interview with Bloomberg's Ed Hammond, we discussed what motivates sources to leak deals. We also touched on how and why bad journalism even makes it to print. Now in part two, I started off by very simply asking Ed how the deal processes begin and why so many times they can die out midway through. How do most deals start? Do they start with the CEO feeling aspirational? Do they start with a uh, investment banker pitch? How does it get off the ground? I'm probably like two steps removed from at least um, from knowing the real answer to that. I, I think in this market, it's inter- it's a really interesting point because I think in, in this market, right, I think a lot of deals get off the ground because CEOs see their rivals do deals and they think, fuck, if I don't pull the trigger on my own deal soon, the credit market will have changed and I won't be able to do it right. or someone will buy me or right. an activist will show up in my stock and tell me that I have to do something and it will be embarrassing. So I think a lot of it at the moment is kind of self-fulfilling, right? The motivation is because other people are doing it and if, if no one wants to be sort of last at the dance. Um, but if you look at a sort of more benign or flat deal environment, I mean, it can be any number of things, right? It could be it could be that they themselves feel like if they don't do something, they're going to be a target. It could be that a CEO, CEO has empire-building ambitions and wants to kind of turn mm-hmm. the company into something else. One thing that I definitely feel there's a, a, a dearth of at the moment is sort of, you know, Vertical deals where people would use where people would use M and A as a way to like move into a completely different sector. You just don't really see that anymore. I mean, it's I guess conglomerates are very, you know, out of vogue at the moment. Um, but that's you know those kind of deals. I think when they were happening, and you'd have to go back to the last cycle really to see them. No, oh, AT and T Time Warner. Well, AT and T. Although AT and T Time Warner is is yes. And I was thinking as I was saying that, that is a vertical deal, but it's also a defensive deal, right? It's a vertical deal based on the fact that they see increased competition from these sort of, you know, much more integrated right. businesses that are coming after their, their core market. Um, but I think, you know, the if you look at the industrial companies, when they were going out and diversifying and, you know, they maybe made widgets and then they went out and started, you know, doing something completely different, like filtration systems. Those deals, people don't like anymore. I mean, we're going in the opposite direction, where if you don't break up your company into its composite parts, the activists come, <laughs> come right. in and tell you to do it. But the, the point being, that I think those kind of deals were much more about ego because there's not really strategic rationale. It's just like, I'm going to have the biggest empire on right. the map. Right. And then on the flip side, why do you think deals die? 
I don't think it's because of leaks. I'd say that. Uh, you know, there, there, are, there are definitely people in the M&A milieu who would tell you that leaks kill deals. I think for the most part that's nonsense, uh, with the exception of sort of certain very, very complex cross-border transactions where, you know, a deal leaking could mean the acquiring company or both companies haven't had time to sort of socialize it with the government. Um, but I, I think vanilla public-to-public deals being out there before they're quite ready, I don't think is a, is a reason deals die. Um, why do deals die? I mean, activists definitely are a part of it. I think, I thought activists, if anything, would make it happen. Yeah, they do sometimes, but they also sometimes stop it from happening because they'll either try and ask for a higher price that's not achievable or they will say that there's a better deal that can be done that never materializes or whatever. Um, so I think that's that's part of it. I also think, um, you know, we're in an era now and you can apply this to almost any aspect of the regulatory landscape, be it national security, um, antitrust, even sort of more esoteric things like the way the government here behaves over the tax issue around diversions, right? Mm-hmm. The, the governments in the West and in Asia are being much, much more muscular than they ever have been before about the way they use the regulatory bodies at their disposal as tools for industrial policy, right? And you just need to look at the way that CFIUS or Trump, you know, and CFIUS came out against Broadcom Qualcomm. I mean, that was without precedent, both in terms of the the way they went about it, i.e. before a deal had even been agreed, they said this is never going to fly, and also the scale, the scale of the deal. I mean, this was a, a vast deal, and apparently, you know, without much analysis, they just said, absolutely no way, this is something we're not going to let happen. And you're seeing that kind of thing more and more. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be drawn on whether the DOJ did or didn't have a real case on AT&T Time Warner, but it certainly seemed like a sort of shoot first and ask questions later approach. Right. So another friend of mine said, you have to ask Ed about Thoratech. Do you remember that deal? St. Jude bought Thoratech. Uh, and so in when? 2015. And the reason that, that traders ask about these one specific kinds of deals is because the, the activity that led up to the deal was so strange. Okay. So just to give you a timeline. Can I pull it up on my phone to like see Please. the stock? So Did it ha- is this a deal that happened or a deal that didn't happen? Did happen. Did happen. Did happen. Did happen. Let's have a look. So medical device maker. Um, so you're looking at July 2015. Hold on. St. Jude's will acquire implant maker Thoratech. Uh, that looks like it's post-announcement. So so there was obviously a, uh, only a week or something between the Correct. Story. Right, okay, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Green Bee, right? Which means that it's a proprietary piece of news that Bloomberg published. Um, St. Jude Medical is in talks to acquire Thoratech Corp, a maker of implants that aid failing hearts, according to people familiar with the situation. What's the question? The, the events that led up to it. So on the 17th, the stock was 47. On Monday, the stock was 50. On Tuesday, the stock was 57. And then the story comes out. And so my question to you is, well, one, are you responding to the price action? Two, when you're reading this, or sorry, when you're writing this, are you looking at the stock and saying, wow, obviously this has been totally leaked. Is there a sense of guilt writing that story when the stock is already up 25%? And I just want to know, you know, I'm sure, you know, you don't have a vivid memory of how this went down, but 
that was the event where every trader on earth is going, what the hell is going on? I'm just looking now. Yeah, Thoratech jumps 14% in early trading. Um, we need someone like you on my team who can actually has this like great memory for all this stuff. But as a general point, I, and I think, I think I said something along these lines a few moments ago, but if, if the shares, if there's really unusual activity in the trading before a story goes out, is that a reason to not run a story? No, not necessarily. But I do think it's a reason to kind of pause and ask, well, what's going on here? Um, and is this information already in the public domain? Um, and if it's not in the public domain, why are the shares moving so much? You know, and, and I think any reporter is going to then go into their sort of immediate memory and say, who have I called about this? Right. Is one of my sources responsible for putting this out there? Um, does this mean, and, and again, this would always be pure speculation because you would never know the answers to these questions, but you could say, well, does this mean that someone else is chasing it? Does this mean, you know, someone at the journal or someone at Reuters or CBC is calling around asking the same questions that I'm asking and that's sort of widening the circle of people who know. Someone has told someone in the market begins to trade. So, so as, can, as a trader, I'm thinking somebody's going to get investigated. Right. And it could be, and it could end up being that, and that, um, would also be a consideration, although unless you felt one of your sources was going to be investigated, I think it would be something you would, would not dedicate a huge amount of time to. Um, again, it comes back to the point of, yes, it's something to think about if the shares are trading strangely, but if you know your information is accurate, it's not a reason to hold off running a story. And in fact, I would say sometimes it, it should actually add weight to the reason to run a story because yeah. it makes public something which is already obviously in possession, some people are in possession of. Right. It may make people bang their head against their desk when your story comes out. Right, right, that's that's correct. I think that the danger, and this is a kind of, you know, something that all responsible M&A journalists should be deeply concerned about. The danger is when you see, you know, something like that where the shares are up 14% and someone gets duped into running a story that's wrong. And then it's a, you know, then to use the American expression, it's a clusterfuck because you've put out a story that has fueled an already um, sort of wild run-up in the shares on bad information. Mm -hmm. And if that story is then denied, you know, that's a, that's a real bad situation because then obviously you have, you know, obviously by mistake, not by any design, but you have participated in a scheme to... Um, to ramp up a stock. So I think that's very risky. In, in the UK, fortunately, we have a slightly different system whereby if shares move a certain amount, companies are actually obligated to right. explain why. Um, if there's a deal in the offing, they're, they're obligated to say, we are in receipt of an offer or whatever it is. And that both is great as an M&A reporter and also can be frustrating because it means sometimes, you know, and I think people... Um, had this exact thing on the Unilever craft deal where there was no story, there was no real story rather out there, but there were in the various market columns in London, there was speculation that there was some noise around um, Unilever potentially being taken over by Kraft. Now, what was interesting was that the some noise was just a little bit of movement in the shares that generated, well, what's going on, what's going on? And right. that was a speculation. Now, as soon as that speculation gets into the market columns, other people read it and think, hmm, maybe that speculation informed. Why don't I get into the stock as well? As soon as the stock goes up over a certain threshold, bang, they have to go to the takeover panel and make a statement to the markets. So 
that's a really you know that it's a really interesting situation in the UK and, and one that I often wonder whether it would be better or worse if they had in the US. I as wish well. we had it here. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is great on that. Obviously, if you were close to running a story that that was happening, and then the takeover panel kind of you know forces the company to scoop you on your own scoop, that's right. deeply frustrating because how often do you get a deal that big? But uh, but as a um, you know, I for obvious reasons don't hold any investments. But as someone who cares uh, a lot about properly functioning markets and and you know fair markets. I wouldn't disagree. I think there, there is a good case for something like that to exist in, in the US where you have some mechanism by which it's, it's, it's hard for the few to be in possession of information and, and make money on that information. Okay. So I end every interview with uh, five questions. Question one, in your career, what would you describe as the biggest deal that never happened? Oh, um, wow. I mean, this, the, I suppose Exxon Chevron is the deal that like everyone was talking about at some point and never happened. Like that well, was, it hasn't happened yet, right? It could happen. I like mean, that was actually close. No, I don't think that was close. I just think that was like one of those like dream deals that people talked about. I mean, more like you heard real rumblings about something, but it just never came to be. Um, I asked a contemporary of yours once, and they said, you know, Google was very close to buying Twitter, and it just never happened. I don't know whether that is fair, but um, I mean, there's so many. It's again, I'm not wanting to avoid the question. It's just like I'm trying to think which is the the one that. Are you saying which one would I like to have seen happen? No, just the biggest one, the most intriguing one that that just never came to be. Uh, that you thought had a legitimate shot. I mean, I'm sort of tempted to say the Tesla take private, although I'm not sure I ever thought that had a legitimate shot. But like, that's one of those deals that's like. It's so crazy, not just in its conception, but in everything that was going on around it, like the way it got out into the public domain, the right. fact that the, the apparent people putting up the finance like didn't know that they were supposed to be putting up the finance and quickly said, we don't want to do it. The fact that you had all these other sort of bizarre but very interesting um, characters around it, whether there's SoftBank, whether it's the Saudis, whether it's, you know... Um, any number of people that Musk was or maybe wasn't with the the weekend when he sent the tweets out. I mean, that had that happened, that would be an amazing deal because it's just like the what we call in in the, in the deal press the TikTok of the deal. The sort of you know the blow by blow account of how this thing came together from you know genesis to to completion would have been an amazing read. Is Elon Musk just a reporter's dream? Um, not in August because in August. You know, older reporters like me like to be able to go home early occasionally, and Elon Musk has ensured that that's not been the case. But I think, look, reporters, the press generally relies on interesting, colorful, um, unpredictable characters because that, after all, is what makes life interesting. And, you know, I would say, yes, Elon Musk is a media dream in the same way that Donald Trump is. I mean, right. you know, I, I don't think it's that the media necessarily agrees with everything Trump says and does. And in fact, you could obviously make the case that they disagree with with a, a big proportion of it but has the media ever been as busy and as exciting and i mean it's nuts at the moment right like you you never know what you're going to get when you switch on the tv or when you pick up a newspaper because it's the news flow at the moment is just you know it's coming from all directions yeah question two it's impossible to place a value on the information that you obtain even in your phone 
Has anyone ever approached you to try to bribe you? Or has anyone ever tried to hack your phone or your email? Uh, I don't know the answer to the second two because if they were any good at it, I wouldn't know, right? Um, no one's ever tried to bribe me. I, I don't really think there'd be much point in trying to bribe an M&A journalist because what are you going to, I mean, what, what would the bribe be for? Like, tell me about a deal to that front you run work. a story. But, I mean, you, it would be almost impossible to make that worth the journalist well because if the journalist really wanted to, from, if the journalist really wanted to make money off a story, they would front run it themselves. With what capital? You well, could. that's a good point. They could, I suppose, leverage that ability by get. But it's it would be so. Um, I mean, I'm sure it has happened at some point in history, but it would be such an absurd thing to do for the very obvious reason that you could only do it once. So whoever is compensating you for the the opportunity to do that would basically have to buy you out for the rest of your career. That's right. That's I mean, you find someone who's got that kind of capital, and you find a journalist who's stupid enough to take it, but. I don't know. I, th I think it's one of those things where the the logic is so screwy. Right. Question three. What's the most unusual way you've ever come across a scoop? Um, that's one of those questions I really like to think about. What's the most unusual way? Oh, well, this may not be the most unusual way because I've probably forgotten the most unusual way because it was so obscure, but I came across a pretty good scoop once at a job interview, which was really weird. Well, not maybe not a job interview because that would suggest there was some formality to it, but I had a meeting with someone that I wasn't sure of the, um, the basis of the meeting. It wasn't clear to me why they would want to meet me because okay. it seemed, you know, normally the journalist is the one who approaches the source and the source is the one who plays hard to get, not the other way around. And I thought, well, this is weird, but I should definitely do it because I want to meet this person. You know, like I wouldn't have even thought there was a route to meet this person. And the person kind of, you know, in a clunky way, but an interesting way, pitched me on a, on a job that was sort of to be determined, but would use, and to be clear, this was a, this was a formal job. This was not a bribe. This was someone saying like, leave your current employment right. and come and work in my employment. Um, and just as part of a conversation where we were discussing well like what if anything could someone like me with my background ever do for someone like you in terms of sort of a lot of the skills of a journalist are not transferable i mean some obviously are but a lot aren't and you know i think there's a misconception that journalist networks will always travel with them right so a journalist going over to pr for instance a lot of the time 90 percent of their sources will stop talking to them because right. it's a different dynamic um although to be clear this wasn't a pr job and in 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 that conversation this person told me and and i don't think by accident as in i think they were sort of happy for me to know in in full knowledge of the fact that i would potentially use it in a story they told me about a deal that was you know extremely interesting and at that point extremely unpublic um and you know being fair and responsible i i after sort of after the meeting had taken place i did say to them like you know hey i've just you know i kind of want to stay in what i'm doing but i also want to uh, carry out from this meeting this pretty interesting piece of information and i said yeah fine just you know can you tell me what it was no i don't want to talk about the deal because then it would be relatively easy for a smart person to trace it back to the individual and, and you know, that would obviously be improper but it, but what was interesting was that you know this was someone who the reason I would never have thought of 
I could have them as a source is they are not someone who has any reason to ever talk to the press. They're not someone who would really get any upside from having media relationships. So it was sort of fascinating to me watching the process by which this person decided, yeah, it was cool. You can write the story, fine, but just like, I don't want it traced back to me. Um, and I said, that's fine. Like there's a million ways to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but it was, that was a very bizarre way of getting a story. And it was also one where like, I had to really think about like, you know, even though this person is fine with the story coming out because they're not someone who's used to dealing with the press, do they mm. even, and they were a very, very smart person, are a very smart person, but do they themselves have the requisite sophistication to understand like what will happen when this story comes out? Right. right, because a normal source. One of the things that makes them a normal source is that they they understand what's going to happen with the information. Right, they understand that like the tip becomes a story and the story gets published, and that's going to cause like a huge you know ripple effect. And um, that was a sort of I I actually gave that one a lot of thought because I think there were real ethical questions about like does this source really understand what's going to happen when I publish this story? Right. And I I I don't think I've ever worked on a story where I went back to the source that many times to say like this is what's going to happen are like, you sure I, yeah like I'm going to explain to you like when we hit the button on the story this will be you know it, it, these will be the likely consequences first order then these maybe will be the second order consequences and you know are you sure because it wasn't as I say the way I got the original piece of information was not um, in a conversation where someone was sort of giving me information because I was a journalist. Right. right. Question four. Looking back over your career, if it was to end today, what would you say were the high point and the low points? Uh, well, if it was to end today, I would probably say that was the low point. Um, if the high point of my career, uh, I think, and this sounds really cheesy and lame, I think the high point of my career was roundabout January, February 2014, I'd moved here from London in October um, and was pretty unsure as to whether or not it was really the right decision. You know, I'd never covered m and I would spent my whole career at the FT in London. The FT in Europe is a very different beast to what it is here in terms of, you know, um, the punch that it packs, right? In the mm -hmm. US, it was a sort of, you know, it was always way behind the journal, whereas in Europe, it is the preeminent sort of financial organ. Um, and I spent those first few months, like, really not knowing what the fuck I was doing. You know, meeting people, not having smart questions, not really knowing how I went from, you know, or rather knowing how to go from being in a conversation with someone to asking like, what stories can I break, right? Because how, even now I probably couldn't answer that. Like, how do you go from having nothing in your notebook to actually like breaking a story? It's not, there's no one way to it. And right. I was really, and I think all M&A journalists at the beginning grapple with this. And, you know, I didn't, there was no one at, the FT at the time who had just finished M&A because the person who had just finished M&A had gone elsewhere. So I was sort of, you know, it was a cold start. And those first three or four months, I really was just like, I felt like I was in the dark. I didn't know what on earth I was doing. And then there was a moment, kind of January, February, where it kind of just clicked. Something just started to work. And I sort of figured out like, oh, it's not black magic. It's not impossible. Like there you will occasionally break news. And around that time I broke a proper, what I would say was like my proper first M&A scoop, which was Laurelard Reynolds, which was a, was a cool deal. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was, a, it 
was a reasonably big deal, but it was also like an interesting deal. It was consumer facing, it was tobacco, like everyone right. loves cigarette deals, they're kind of fun and relatable. Um, and I, it was a real, like that was a real high point for me, not just in my career, but I feel like in, in you know, the sort of more personal aspect of moving to a foreign country and trying to sort of figure out whether or not it's the right decision. Because no one wants to go home with their tail between their legs after right. six months and say, oh, I fucked up, like, and all my stuff's following me back in a freight container. You want to go and say like, yeah, it was successful. And just getting that first sort of, you know, complicated scoop over the line, that was a real, um, that was, it was part of a sort of bigger moment for me where I realized like, maybe this is something I'm going to be okay at. Yeah, and then something regrettable or a point that you felt like was a real struggle. I mean, probably the first twenty times I went on TV, any one of them could fall into that, right? Because there's nothing quite like um, there's nothing quite like being on live TV and worrying that you're saying really, really dumb stuff. I mean, it's all right saying really dumb stuff even on a podcast because you know you might be kind enough to edit it out, and even if you don't. It's a, it's a slightly, the, the immediacy is not there, right? On TV, if you say something really stupid right. and people are watching, they get it. Like, it's just horrible. Um, but in terms of, like, really significant regrets, um, oh, I have one. I have one that was horrendous, and this would be a good lesson for, for anyone in any job, I hope. But, uh, so before I moved to New York to do m for the FT, um, there was some idea that the FT wanted to send me to D.C., to cover or the issue was they didn't really know what they wanted me to cover I was told by someone extremely senior at the FT in London here's what you want to cover you should do like the business of the hill you should be the guy who writes about lobbying and regulation and what companies like the way companies intersect with government to pursue their own interests and the way the government sort of constantly tries to tread this line between actually being like you know of the people but also having to play to these extremely powerful interests and I thought you know what like that sounds amazing, right? That does sound amazing. Even saying it now, I'm like, that's kind of a, that's a fucking cool job. Um, and having initially sort of when the job was advertised in DC and it was advertised as like regulation correspondent and your focus was going to be the SEC and some other kind of, you know, DOJ and whatever. And I thought, mm, that's not really my bag. I don't want to cover regulation. Right. But did, did, then someone said to me, oh, don't make it about regulation. Do this much bigger business on hell. Like, Great, let's do that. So what was not communicated to me was that the person who was interviewing me didn't know about this business on the whole idea. So I essentially walked into a job interview and had prepared for and pitched myself very hard for a job that didn't exist, at least in the mind of the person who was interviewing me. Right. And it got, I mean, it got really bad after sort of 10 minutes when it was very clear to that person that I didn't understand like all the acronyms they were throwing at me about the various regulatory bodies I, I didn't know what they I didn't know who they were I didn't know what they were I was asked like who's going to be your top three sources in you know the FTC and I was like I don't even know what that is right. I mean I cover real estate in London I have no reason to know what the FTC is right and it was just I mean it was it was painful really painful and it was one of those moments where like I came out of it the interview like knowing that it had been just like unmitigated fucking horrible horrible train wreck and I went to this straight after to a leaving drinks of a colleague at the FT and I was like really down I was like oh my god it was the worst thing ever like you could do it was just terrible and everyone was like no I'm sure it's fine you know always in a job interview like we always think we did worse than we did and (laughs) actually like you know everyone's nervous and I was like no no it was just really awful Um, and 
it was really bad. Like the guy who interviewed me basically like requested that I be fired because he said this guy's a clown. Like, and I was a clown. He said like he showed up for an interview and didn't have any idea even about the really basic stuff of the job. Like he didn't know what the job was. It was like he hadn't read the job ad. And it was, I mean, it was tough. It was a, it was a, it took me personally and professionally, it took a while to recover from that. And what was pretty egregious was that the person who had told me to pitch it a certain way was significantly senior to the person who was interviewing me for the job. Um, but after it all went wrong, and I was like, well, you know, what on earth? Like, this should be corrected. I was basically right. told, like, sorry, but you're collateral damage. Like, this person doesn't want to expend their political capital, you know. To defend you. To, to basically admit that they would want to fall because right. they were the one who told you to apply for a job that didn't exist in anyone else's mind. It was fine in the end because obviously it meant the FT moved me into a job that no one else wanted, which was M&A in the US. Because M&A in the US in 2013 was considered kind of hard, but also non-eventful there weren't many deals so it was the thing that made it hard was that like there were only a handful of deals a year and if you missed them kind of you were nowhere um and the rest is history yeah last question you cover a very serious topic for a serious news agency but what is what would you say is the guilty pleasure in terms of content that you read or you watch outside of work i mean i'm pretty bad i don't feel guilty about most things uh what do I read outside of work? I want to have like a wholesome answer and say like I read a lot of, you know, literary criticism or stuff like that. But and I used to much more. I, I don't really now, unfortunately. Um, so I'm a big cyclist and I read a lot of cycling trash. And most cycling, you know, most sports journalism is is, you know, if it's if it's sort of uh, rolling sports journalism, it is pretty trashy because it's trying to make news stories out of pretty inconsequential things. So I spend particularly during the summer, during the, the sort of pro race season in Europe, I spent a ton of time watching reruns of like the Tour de France or at the moment the Vuelta Espana, which is the Spanish version of the tour. Right. And, and like I watch it, I'll listen to podcasts about it, I'll read all the kind of gossip stuff about like who's transferring to which team or like which rider has lost more weight or, you know, and, and so that's my, that's my whatever you call it, guilty pleasure. Got it. Ed Heyman, thanks again, man. Thank you. My thanks again to Bloomberg's Ed Hammond for taking the time out to be fairly candid and open on just how the M&A journalism process plays its role in the overall scope of dealmaking. As a reminder, this is a weekly podcast, but I often tweet out my opinions in real time. My handle is at Accord, two sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O, sources. If you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. It will help me to continue to get guests like Ed Hammond on the show. Next week, I'll return to refocus on some active deal situations, such as Yum China, IDTI, and AEL. I'm Mike Samuels, Portfolio Manager and Founder of Broom Street Capital, and this has been According to Sources for the week of September 9th, 2018. I will see you next week. Just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions Just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that you heard today on this podcast are the opinions of Broom Street Capital according to sources and Mike Samuels and are not considered to be investment advice. 
Michael Samuels, Broom Street Capital, and according to sources, will not be held liable for any losses taken as a result of investments based on the opinions of this podcast.